Hey Buddha Nation, welcome to the Ecom Show, where we invite e-commerce entrepreneurs, marketers, and agencies to talk about e-commerce, the best strategies and tactics, and what to implement in your own e-com store. Before we jump into this episode, I ask you to subscribe to this podcast, and if you like it, make sure you share it with at least one friend. As you probably know, we don't run ads. Our growth is purely organic, so it would mean the world to me if you could support us. And now let's jump into the episode. Hey everyone, here is Daniel Budai with a brand new episode of the Ecom Show. And today I'm here with Jared Schrieber. And uh, he's uh, probably the most active angel investor in my home country in Hungary. He's originally from the US, but uh, his wife is from Hungary. So that's why he moved here. And also he's the author of a very popular uh, book about e-commerce brands breakout brands i will put the link into the description you can find it there so jared has a very interesting uh, story i would say and how he ended up here in central europe but first let's start with sports because i'm a huge fan of sports as well and i know jared has a rich uh, past a rich history of sports himself so jared uh, tell us more about your story but also about uh, Australian football. <laughs> oh, okay, certainly. Well, uh, you know, I guess when I was a kid in the U.S., I played every sport I possibly could, and that's uh, it's a slight difference from from Europe and the rest of the world in that in in most of the world you you participate in a sport and you're part of a club and and you're working uh, to develop your skills in that sport year round. And in the U.S., you have soccer season and basketball season and baseball season and. and and, you know, they last three, three to four months each and you just go from sport to sport to sport, which is what I did. And so, you know, I had the good fortune of uh, being able to continue uh, to be a multi-sport athlete in college in the, in the U.S. collegiate system, playing, playing soccer, playing American football, track and field, decathlon. And uh, did that uh, through college uh, and uh, kept trying to make it to the Olympics in, uh, in the javelins row of all things uh, was my best event in the decathlon. And uh, just could, couldn't quite get there, was fighting injuries and probably candidly just didn't have the talent. But, uh, uh, you know, to, I, I took a year off after, after college, after trying to, to make the U.S. Olympic team in the javelin. And one of my colleagues came to me and said, Jared, you, you're an athlete, right? Um, uh, you know, I've got a friend who's starting an Irish uh, football club here in, in Phoenix, Arizona, where we lived. Um, and I'm like, you know what? It would be nice to try a sport that I haven't done at a, at a higher level because I won't have anything to compare myself against. I won't, I won't feel like, oh, I was better back in the day. And so, so I did it. And it turns out that uh, the Irish guys end up playing a lot of Australian rules football as well because Australian rules football is the violent, uh, bastardized version of the gentlemanly Irish football. And so uh, I got into my first Aussie rules game and, and just got smashed catching my first uh, kick and popped up and said, all right, this is for me and, and uh, made a go of it. And so uh, a couple of years later, I was playing for the U.S. national team in Australian rules football and uh, by far my favorite sport I've ever played. Wow, interesting. Is it similar to rugby or American football? Yeah, uh, yes, in that it's a oblong ball, you know, a funnily shaped ball um, and uh, is very violent in that, you know, full out hitting and tackling. So it's, it's similar to rugby and, and American football in that regard. 
The big difference is the ball is moving around in every direction, uh, much more like hockey or soccer in terms of the passing, where the ball's moving very quickly in every direction, not just backwards or not just forwards. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as a result, it's wide open play and you can get hit from any angle at any time, which is uh, maybe one of the unique things about Australian rules football is yeah. there almost are no rules. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, so let's uh, talk more about business. So I, I really like sports because of the competitive nature of it. And uh, I just started training every day. I, I have only one uh, rest day now. I started oh. doing this schedule and I really like this. For like two weeks, I was very tired, but I realized that because my sleep wasn't as good as it can be. Mm -hmm. um, and, and my nutrition and actually it helped me to, you know, make those better. And now I can train six times a week without any problem. Awesome. So it's yeah. very interesting for me. Um, but I, yeah, I, I, really, I really like sports for many different reasons, but comparing the two. So you mentioned that you may, probably you were not talented enough for javelin to make it to the Olympics. Right. And, uh, how about business? So that is this, you know, nurture and nature kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you think that probably sport is more nature, but business is an area where talent is probably less important and then you can develop the skills over time. Yeah. yeah, yeah the, drive, the drive and, uh, and capability. There's probably some level of truth to that. Um, well, for one, I think to be successful in business, you don't have to be the top uh, one out of 10 or 100,000 people at what you do to be successful in business. To be successful as a professional athlete or an Olympic athlete, you literally have to be better than another 10,000 people trying to be successful at that same thing. Uh, and so the standard of success is fundamentally different for being um you know, let's call it excellent or having great results in sports versus having great results in business. So I think it's just fundamentally a different bar. And because it's a different bar, I think the ability for somebody who has drive uh, and a willingness to constantly, you know, learn um, and grow and develop themselves, regardless of whatever their their base level of talent they were born with or, or you know, through their through their childhood experience developed, um, there's an opportunity for them to improve themselves to a level where they can really be successful in business. Uh, they may not, they may not build a brand that is, you know, one of the top uh, hundred or thousand brands in the world, but you don't need to do that to be successful. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Um, let's talk about your, uh, your book. So breakout brands, what the book mm -hmm. is about and sure. what was your motivation to write this yeah. book? Well, it's actually a, a, a great uh, tie-in because the, the book is about a long-term study of 25,000 consumer goods brands in the U.S. over a five-year period where I tried to understand um, what does success look, lo look like? The brands that really took off and grow year over year over year for five years, what does that look like and how did they do it? Uh, and so the first thing I can... I should give a little context is uh, I had access to a very unique set of data, actually multiple sets of data that no one in the world had ever gotten their hands on before. And part of it was because of the company that I had built in the 10 years prior known as Numerator, 
where we had a million U.S. consumers uh, taking pictures of every one of their shopping receipts every time they shop, no matter where they went or what they bought. And we would read out the item level details for market research purposes. But we also got access to all of their e-commerce transactions. Uh, they provided us access to their email accounts, installed a, a browser plugin. Uh, we, could, we could see everything that they were doing online. In addition, as a company, we built capabilities to track every ad uh, of every type, whether it's digital ads, social ads, radio ads, TV ads, um, uh, billboard ads, you name it. We tracked every advertisement of every brand across every form of media. Uh, in the Sorry, US, how did you do that? I understand the receipts yeah. and the purchases, but the ads? It depended on the type of uh, the type of media that we were tracking. So for like TV, we would use bots. So we created bots mm -hmm. that effectively watched uh, TV. Same same for radio. Uh, for print ads, we actually had uh, we would call it almost like scouts around the country who would take take uh, pictures of the contents of of different um, uh, newspapers and 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 print. Uh, that's also partly how we got all of the promotions in every store across the country. So anytime a price would change on a product in a store, uh, we would capture we would capture that uh, most often from participation by the retailers themselves, but but also via the scouts that we had in in the various markets around the country. So every advertisement, every promotion, every sales price, um, and then we scraped the e-commerce pages of, of every uh, major retailer in the U.S. And so we knew what products they were carrying at what price and the reviews of those products and how the reviews changed over time, which embeds a ton of information. So we had an amazing data set that no one else had ever had. And when I sold the company, um, I, I just had a personal interest to say, you know what, all of our clients use this data for really tactical decisions to understand what's happening in the market. Nobody's taking a really big step back and saying, how do you leverage this data to understand what winning brands do, the breakout brands that really show tremendous success compared to their peers uh, over a multi-year period? What do they do differently than their competitors who stay flat or drop? And so one of the fascinating things was, how do you define a breakout brand? Like, how do you know when a brand is really winning uh, regardless of the product category that they compete in or the, or the type of retail channel? And the surprising thing is in the US, um, over a three-year period even, a brand that can gain one and a half percentage points in market share, so about a half a percent per year for three years, and can grow their sales by $10 million a year for three years, so growing $30 million over three years, they can grow, grow both their market share and their actual sales by that much they are an Olympic level brand. And what I mean by that is literally uh, less than one in 10,000, I'm sorry, not one, uh, about one in 5,000 brands is able to, to achieve that level of success. It's really, really low odds of being so able to grow that So you only found much. five brands basically. So, so yeah, forgive me, I'm, I'm off by a digit here, sorry. It's been a little bit since I did the, the study. Uh, there, were, there were 56 brands out of the 25,000 studies okay. that met the criteria. So it's, uh, I guess that would put it closer to one in 500. Yeah, that's not yeah, that, yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, there were 56 brands out of 25,000 studied that met that criteria. That's not many, you know, yeah. to, to only grow by a half a percent of market share a year. Uh, and, and in the U.S., which is a huge market to grow your your overall sales. This is in store and online combined. So omnichannel sales uh, being able to grow by by 10 million a year. Um, you know, that's not a huge, huge bar, especially when you think about some of the larger brands out there, but yet so few can do it. And I would think that every brand manager out there 
would have that as kind of like their annual scorecard or their bonus criteria would be to grow their brand that much. And yet one in 500 are actually doing it. It's crazy. That's 0.2%. 0.2. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So what's the conclusion? Don't start an e-commerce brand? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, here's the thing. I would say maybe it's, it's, uh, it's not as easy as it might seem uh, to just, you know, uh, be radically successful. But a breakout success is a different level. It's the Olympic level. There's other forms of success that you can achieve, right? Growing $10 million a year in retail sales is pretty significant. And I'm sure a lot yeah. of people listening to your program would be quite happy if they could grow by a million dollars or a million euro uh, a year in, in terms of sales, that that, that would actually be um, uh, reasonably successful for them and profitable for them. So, um, so that's one. The first thing I would say is don't don't plan on and expect that level of breakout success unless you're you're getting everything right. But but uh, there's plenty of room for for brands to to grow by a million or or two a year. Um, and and second of all, you know I think some of the key learnings of how the brands really had success. Um, uh, you know a, a differentiated product that that uniquely delivers on a value proposition within the category in a way that competing brands don't. Uh, is, is clearly one of the key, key drivers here in terms of being able to, to build a breakout, a breakout brand. Um, mm -hmm. And then the second is uh, where you have products where um, people come back and, and buy it again or buy more, especially on the next occasion for that type of, of product or solution, uh, you've got something. You can really build winners uh, if people are coming back for more. And that was uh, one of the biggest differentiators between brands that grew that didn't. And, and in long purchase cycle categories where people like durable products, where people tend to only buy one for themselves, the big question is, uh, is, is kind of that word of mouth, uh, the net promoter score, uh, referrals to friends, um, uh, or do they buy it as a gift for somebody else? Like those are the indicators for the longer purchase cycle or more durable products versus the consumables. Yeah, like uh, I think Casper and these type of brands yeah. are, are a good example. Mattresses, furniture, home decor. Mm -hmm. We have even one client in my company. They sell sauna for 10, mm -hmm. 20K. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's just always a challenge what to sell next. Um, so I, I bet. But, you know, in those cases, something like a net promoter score is probably your strongest proxy mm -hmm. to understand uh, level of word of mouth and ability to get referral business, uh, which I think is key for these for these higher ticket items. In fact, uh, I, he I heard um, a study that one of the companies in the space had done that does a lot of volume. And for every point higher on the net promoter score survey mm -hmm. that somebody mm -hmm. reported, you know, if they reported themselves as a seven out of 10 in terms of likely to re recommend or eight or nine, every time you moved up a notch, uh, the person was literally twice, almost twice as likely to, uh, to actually refer a friend. And they knew this because they could tie back the same individual's reporting of how likely they were with whether or not they used referral codes or referral mm -hmm. links to actually yeah. invite friends and they had enough volume to do it. And so, so what that actually means is, you know, net promoter score itself is interesting, but if you take the detailed granular data and you say, who are my tens, who are the people who, who score me at a 10? How are you ensuring that you're getting proper referral and word of mouth from, from those individuals, I think is the takeaway there. Yeah, I really like this one. So you connect your MPS with your referrals basically. 
uh, exactly. through the database exactly. and you find the connection. Because they're going to be so many times more likely to actually yeah. Uh, yeah. refer and take you up on it. Hey Budai Nation, welcome to the Ecom Show. I ask you to subscribe to this podcast and if you like it, make sure you share it with at least one friend. As you probably know, we don't run ads. Our growth is purely organic, so it would mean the world to me if you could support us. And now let's jump into the episode. I think uh, you mentioned $10 million. I know in the US, uh, 0.4% of businesses, it's eight figure. Okay. I, I just like these stats mm-hmm, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and 4% is seven figures. So okay. if uh, you found mm-hmm. 50 brands out of 25,000 mm-hmm. would grow 10 million a year for three mm-hmm. years, then probably mm-hmm. 1 million would be 10 times as many, something like that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think for many it's guys big. listening mm-hmm. to this, um, that's already a big jump, 1 million yeah, per year. For sure. so I think for that's sure. more doable. Um, yeah, and that, that's exactly that's nothing uh, that, <laughs> that's nothing to be disappointed about. That I mean, for a lot of businesses, that is very real success, uh, and and it, it, it's a great objective for depending on yeah. you know what your baseline is and and what kind of operating uh, uh, base you have. That can be an excellent result. Yeah, I, I like this data also because I just saw this Instagram reel the other day that half of the high school seniors in the US, they think that they will be a millionaire by the age of 25. By 25? 25. And yeah. in reality, it's less than 1%. American optimism, boy, I tell you. Yeah. So I can see all of these new guys in e-commerce and they think that they just shoot up some ads on Meta or Google and they will make millions <laughs> in one year. So it's not yeah. like that. Yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. But that's... Uh, that sounds like America to me, you know, uh, just land, land of the optimists. Everybody has big, big dreams, thinks they can uh, do and achieve everything. And as yeah. a result, maybe more people end up doing it because it's just embedded in the, in the culture and the way of thinking. But, but of course, you know, that's not the reality for most in terms of how it plays out. Yeah. Yeah. So the two big things you would say how to stand out in, in your niche and to mm-hmm. you know, have a great growth rate. Mm-hmm. One is the offer, how you can stand yeah, out. Well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other is the retention that I constantly preach as well. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So in do. fact, um, a lot of what I studied was fast moving consumer goods. So products that get bought mm-hmm. repeatedly, you know, yeah. almost every 90 days or faster, most typically. And the brands that were growing had very high consecutive repeat purchase rates compared to, to, to their peers. What it means is, Somebody buys your brand, the next time they go to buy that category of product, do they buy from you again or your brand? You know, do they buy, they shop from you as a retailer, e-commerce site, or do they buy your brand again? Those that do uh, achieve a high percentage of consecutive repeat rate are the ones that are just continuously growing year over year over year. It's not about some particular marketing campaign or some gimmick or some some one-time thing. That is the basis for sustainable continued growth year over mm-hmm. year is that consecutive uh, repeat purchase rate. And again, in something like like durables where people purchase every two or three years, the closest proxy you have uh, is probably something akin to a net, net promoter score. Yeah. And uh, my next question. So what are those things that are not important, but people might think that those are important besides <laughs> certain marketing? Yeah. 
Yeah, so, um, so price-based promotions uh, are really good at moving sales in the short run. Uh, they, there's, there's no lever you can pull that tends to move sales as quickly in the short run mm -hmm. as doing some kind of price-based offer, a coupon, a, a sales promotion, a, a one-time offer, you name it. And what we found is on a year-over-year -year growth basis, the companies who relied more on price offers uh, were the ones, uh, the brands, I should say, that, that relied on that, were the ones that actually struggled the most over a multi-year period. Um, yeah. So in other words, they could not, uh, not only not sustain growth, they were most likely to be in decline. And so, you know, often they would keep up with their unit sales, but their actual uh, dollar sales and margins would be dropping year over year over year if they relied on, on price-based promotion techniques in order to drive sales. And the brands who focused a little bit more on things like how to ensure that, you know, every year they had something more innovative or unique about their product or product offering uh, were the ones who uh, were really brand building in a way that it was sustainable on a year over year basis that would continue to drive sales for them. Interesting. Uh, I think you can still use this lever, you know, these price promotions, but mm -hmm. you should be aware how many times you do this. How often and to whom? So this was another th mm -hmm. uh, finding was, it's not that price promotions themselves are bad, but um, price promotions to get somebody to buy for the very first time mm -hmm. yeah. can be a really strong incentive because there's a lot of inertia to overcome to get somebody to transact with you for the very first time. And so, so actually that can be quite effective uh, where, where needed to, to help get someone over the hump to move forward. Once they have, uh, using that as the way that you retain is, is actually not recommended and not a good idea. You're basically uh, articulating to that customer that this is the value of your product ongoing. And so anytime they see it at, at anything other than the discounted price, it doesn't feel like a good value. And it gives them a reason to look for an alternative because they don't feel like they're getting a good value anymore because you've trained them as to what the price for your product should be. Yeah. Uh, there's not so much training in effect in the very first kind of uh, purchase, especially if it's positioned uh, as, you know, uh, first time customer offer uh, as a way to get somebody to transact with you the first time. Yeah, and this is the right time of the year to talk about this. Uh, now when we are recording this, we are just after Black Friday and everyone pushes out these uh, huge discounts and they want to get more new customers. But around January, February, February, a few months later, it will be interesting to check those cohorts of new customers, how they do and what, what's their LTV uh, later. And many times we can see that new customers coming in, in summer or April, May, they have a stronger LTV than the new ones in October, November. So, yeah, I can see this. Uh, it's a very common pattern. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. So they yeah. attract a lot of sales and new customers, but the actual value of each customer is usually lower than lower mm -hmm. in other quarters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem in the long run. Yeah. Uh, it certainly can be, right? Because fundamentally, and this is something that, that, I think e-commerce has gotten right, uh, and especially more on B2B and maybe uh, needs to grow a little bit more on the on the D2C brands, is this CAC to LTV thinking, my customer mm -hmm. acquisition yeah, costs yeah. relative to my lifetime value, because 
um, it fundamentally dictates what, what levers you can pull to, to actually acquire that first customer. Uh, but it's predicated on the idea that you actually have a lifetime value that is more than that initial trans transaction. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, so this is something that's actually lacking from the world of, of retail consumer goods that, that I think uh, D2C, uh, when done right, has really, has really been able to leverage successfully. Yeah, yeah, and in the past years, different software tools, they, I think they really nailed it, like TripleVail, NordBeam, all of, Hyros, all of these tools. Um, mm -hmm. You can see LTV 30, LTV 60, LTV one year, and all of that, and I think that's Got great. It. And well, that's, another, that's another yeah. thing is, is, you know, sometimes the LTV, the payback can be, if you look too far out into the future, mm -hmm. you end up with a cash flow challenge because you're willing to yeah. spend too much to acquire the customer, but it takes too long to pay back in terms of the gross profits generated. Yeah. And so looking at like an LTV 90, an LTV, you know, uh, 180 can be really useful in that because you do have to manage cash flow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one question and, uh, I talk about this with a few startup uh, guys all the time. I'm curious what you think. So I can see this that many e-commerce startups, they think a bit like a software startup and that's not necessarily the right approach hmm. because cost of goods and all of that. Yeah, right. And many D2C brands, they failed because of that in mm -hmm. the US as well. Mm -hmm. So, so what do you think about this topic? Like, wh what are the differences? Because I can see that they just, you know, they just want to burn money. And if you are in software, I think your margins are better, right? That's uh, honestly, that's one of the biggest differences in software. Every incremental unit you sell costs you almost nothing more to deliver, uh, to produce and yeah. deliver. Uh, I had a I had a couple of software comp companies where we actually had real cost of goods sold, like truly thirty mm percent -hmm. cogs on software, which is not normal, and that's because there was a big service component or a big data component. Maybe higher ticket software. It was. Yeah, I mean, support. yeah. So our, our average customer value was was over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, but but uh, it wasn't a situation where. Um, where we were having to to build inventory to support those sales or to deliver on those sales or incur the costs and so what i see happening right now i uh, i work with some some startups that are d2c brands and they get addicted to selling 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 on kind of a pre-order basis uh, but but what they're actually doing is incurring a lot of liabilities of actually having to deliver um, but to keep their growth going or, or to keep the momentum going and, um, and keep the benefit of their marketing campaigns going, they keep re recycling the money back into their marketing campaigns. Uh, and what they're actually doing is digging themselves a bigger and bigger hole mm -hmm. of now yeah. where is the cash going to come from in order to produce uh, and ship and deliver um, against, against that. So, um, so I think I think that's a watch out there because there is real cost. And if those costs don't get accounted for correctly, then all of a sudden you end up in, in a liability situation. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So in software, you don't really have this when you grow in most Almost cases. never. Almost never. Yeah. Every, every sale you make, it goes directly, you know, a huge chunk of it flows directly through to the bottom line. And, yeah. and you actually have those funds available for use to drive further growth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now let's talk about Europe. 
especially Hungary versus US North America. So what differences can you see between the two ecosystems um, regarding angel investors, startups, oh ideas? Yeah, yeah. So um, there, are, there are a few differences. Uh, the biggest difference that I noticed when I first moved over here to, to Hungary and networked within Hungary and broader Central and Eastern Europe is because there have been fewer standout successes in terms of companies, let's say, reaching unicorn status and exits where the founders and key employees became millionaires and they learned a lot of great skills building a company along the way and had great experience from that. In the US uh, and in some other ecosystems, now Israel, now Estonia, now some others, um, that success and what it took to get there and the learnings that were associated with it and the money that resulted from it get reinvested back into the ecosystem in the form of new startups founded by people who were a part of that success story, mm -hmm. funded by people who led that success story, who offer their advice and money to the next generation. And you get this flywheel effect going. And uh, in, in most of Europe, uh, there's no flywheel effect. Uh, you you mm -hmm. don't have the successes that are then being reinvested in terms of the, the experience gained and the money uh, resulting from the, from the exit being reinvested back into the next generation of startups. And that's certainly true in Hungary. I mean, in Hungary, um, there, you know, there, there's been one exit over 250 million in the last many years. And um, so, so you just don't have a lot of founders who, or senior executives who have that experience building that kind of rocket ship growth company to then reinvest uh, back into the ecosystem. So we need that here. Uh, fundamentally, that's that's a real gap. Whereas you, where I come from, Silicon Valley, um, those kinds of founders and experiences are are all over the place. Uh, and so, yeah. uh, you know, it really builds on itself and creates real, real momentum. So I think that's one of the biggest, biggest fundamental gaps. And it, and it results in a few things. It results in uh, there not being much angel fun funding for startups in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, so getting your first money is very, very challenging here compared to the U.S., the U.K., uh, some other markets. And um, having early team members who know what it's like to be a part of a startup and build a startup and have some experience is lacking here. And then finally, you know, let's be frank, because of the legacy of, of communism for, for 50 years, there was no need for sales, marketing, business development, and other forms of business skills to really develop and become ingrained in, in the culture. And as a result, um, you know, I, I would say a, a lot of countries in this region are just behind in terms of having people with those skills and talents. It's catching up uh, and it's getting better every, every year that goes by. Uh, but, but there is that legacy. And so, you know, it's gonna, it, it doesn't solve itself overnight. Yeah. I think uh, my generation is the first generation, uh, who had to learn capitalism yeah. uh, in the past 30 years mm -hmm. and before, uh, our parents, they didn't have to. Right. So, um, so if you were to go work for a company, you might have a boss who's still learning it themselves as opposed to a boss who's, who's, you know, grew up in that system, had it in their whole career, their boss that they learned from or bosses they learned from had great tips and tricks and skills uh, that, that got passed down and applied and the company that they were in already had all these best practices. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a muscle that's still developing here. Yeah, yeah. Do you think the education is also missing or that's not a big part of this? Well, 
I mean, uh, the, the, the education on the business side of things seems to be lagging a little bit, but, but certainly, you know, Hungary and many other countries in this region still have very strong math and science. And, and so as a result, you know, uh, you get really talented engineers solving really difficult problems. There's no shortage of that here relative to, to, to anywhere else. And I think that's true across Central Europe. Uh, so I think the fundamental lack is that. Now, of course, you could also say educationally, there's a, in the U.S., kids are getting up and presenting in front of the class constantly. They yeah. are debating uh, with each other and with teachers and adults quite a bit more versus memorization and, and, and other things. And so I do feel like maybe kids in the U.S. get a little bit of a head start on some of these skills that would serve them very well as entrepreneurs. Uh, versus uh, what what uh, school age children get here. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And uh, when I go to the US, I can see, you know, school kids uh, washing cars for a few bucks uh, in the sure. break. Sure, lemonade stands. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I grew up going to flea markets and, you know, with my dad and, you know, buy some things, fix them up, sell them again and, and just buying, selling, trading. Uh, just became, uh, you know, I, I guess embedded uh, in in that ex that experience. I don't even know if it would be legal in Hungary, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, kids selling stuff, you know. When I, they don't, I don't know. Yeah, I'd have to. I, I haven't seen that happen out at Echeri, the local uh, flea yeah, market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. Yeah, uh, Jared, thanks a lot for sharing uh, your story and your insights about uh, D2C and what you found uh, after analyzing more than 25,000 D2C brands. And uh, his book is uh, Breakout Brands. So I will put the link into the description and uh, you can all find uh, his book and read it. Um, and thanks everyone who listened to this episode. Every week we come out with a new one. I will put one more link into the description. We've sent out more than half a billion emails on behalf of our clients in the past five years, and we collected the 100 best templates. We collected this for you, and you can download this for free as well. I will add this link to the description as well. So thanks again, Jared, and uh, thanks everyone, and uh, have a great day. Thank you. Cheers.